you would please open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our morning sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 10. Uh, We will be looking at chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 12 this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Will you come to me? Come with me to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that once again, as we come to a difficult passage, uh, that you would help us to hear, that you would help us to see, that your spirit would inherit our hearts, that we would be receptive to your word, though it at times is difficult, though it at times Uh, hits us at home and hits us in places we would rather not look at. We do pray, Father, that you would give us receptive spirits and we would know your grace and your mercy and the loving forgiveness that is found in Christ and his shed blood for us. Uh, Guard our hearts in this hour and direct us and draw us evermore to Christ through your word, both read and preached. We ask this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In the United States, there is one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day, 16,800 divorces per week, and 876,000 divorces per year. Statistics show that 41% of first marriages end in divorce, 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and 73% percent of third marriages end in divorce. Over half of marriages, over 50% of the marriages in this country end in divorce, and the statistics show us and the trends show us it is not going to get any better anytime soon. Barbara Whitehead, author of the book The Divorce Culture, writes this concerning the divorce epidemic in our culture today. The notion of marriage as a union between two sovereign selves affirms virtues like independence, initiative, and self-reliance. Yet while attending to the virtues associated with the integrity of the individual, 
our contemporary discourse on marriage entirely neglects the virtues that are essential to the integrity of bonds. Virtues like fidelity, kindness, forgiveness, modesty, gratitude, loyalty, patience, generosity, and selflessness. What Barbara Whitehead shows in her book, The Divorce Culture, is that as America grows in championing things like individuality and uniqueness and independence and having my own personal voice, what depreciates in value is long-term commitments and the, in, in, and the institution that is affected most grievously is the institution of marriage. Now, we might be apt to think that this is a new phenomenon. This is something that is new for us uh, here in America. It certainly is. But what we see in our passage today is that the divorce culture, as Barbara Whitehead calls it, is in no way a new thing. In verse 1 of our passage, Jesus is leaving Capernaum. And he is ending his Galilean ministry. And what he is going to do from here on out is he is going to make a fast track toward the cross. That cross that he has predicted and warned the disciples about back in chapter 8. And here he goes beyond the Jordan into the borders of Judea. And once again, he is surrounded by massive crowds, as is so often the case with Jesus' ministry. And in the midst of the crowd are the skeptics. And this time, the skeptics being represented by the Pharisees, who will pose a question to Jesus on the issue of divorce. And throughout Jesus' discourse, both with the Pharisees and with these disciples, we find that first century Jewish people held a view of divorce that is eerily similar to the view that our country today in the 21st century holds with divorce. Divorce, much like this country today, back in the first century among the Jewish people, was extremely easy to attain. And in response, Jesus gives both these Pharisees and his disciples the proper biblical view of marriage and, in turn, the proper understanding of the ugliness of divorce. So what I want us to see for the remainder of our time is three things that Jesus brings to our attention today concerning marriage. Three things that Jesus brings to our attention today concerning marriage. First, marriage and sin, how sin has impacted marriage, verses 1 through 5. Second, marriage and creation, uh, God's creative order and how we are to understand marriage, verses 6 through 9. And then third and finally, marriage and commitment, uh, the importance of commitment, verses 10 through 12. So first, marriage and sin. Uh, verse 2, we are, at, we are given this uh, question from the Pharisees. They, they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Mark makes clear that the question here comes because the Pharisees wish to, quote, test Jesus. Uh, We see time and time again Jesus being tested by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they will often test him in different varieties of ways. Sometimes they will tickle his ears, try to boost up his ego, saying, Lord, we know you know all things, and then sort of soften him up and then give him a hard question in order to cause him hopefully, to trip up in his answer. And ultimately, what these Pharisees wish to do is be able to expose Jesus. 
accuse Jesus of breaking the law of Moses and be able to expose him as a hypocrite and one who is breaking the Old Testament law that these Pharisees uh, hold to. Verse 3, though, Jesus is not tricked by these Pharisees. He asks them a question. What did Moses command you? What does Moses command? And in verse 4, Moses allowed the man to write a certificate of divorce is the response of these Pharisees. Now, these Pharisees are quoting here in verse 4 from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. They are paraphrasing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses speaks of men offering a certificate of divorce uh, because they find some, quote, indecency in the woman. They find some indecency in the woman. And that is what these Pharisees are quoting here. Now, it's important to note that within the Pharisee camp, there were essentially two schools of thought when it came to this passage in Deuteronomy 24, and that word indecency. First, you had what we might call the Shammai group, who were followers of the Rabbi Shammai. Uh, They held much more of a conservative, narrow view of that word indecency in Deuteronomy 24. Basically, they held that it meant adultery or abandonment, and that was the only time you were able to get a divorce. But then you had a second group, which was the more liberal group, uh, the Hillel group, followers of the Rabbi Hillel. And they took a much more liberal and broader view of that word indecency in Deuteronomy 24. It could mean the woman simply didn't please the man. And so the man was allowed then to give a certificate of divorce. So you had your conservative camp with the Shammai group, and you had your more liberal camp with the Hillel group. But with both groups, whether it be conservative or liberal, with both camps, the whole point of the passage in Deuteronomy 24 is being completely misunderstood. It became a passage about how a man could get out of marriage. What is my way out? How can I get out of a marriage and still have my conscience clean before God? And that was the whole discussion. They obsessed over that word indecency in Deuteronomy 24, debating about how I can have a clean conscience in getting out of my marriage. And it is more than likely that these Pharisees are wanting Jesus to enter into that debate to enter into debate about what indecency entails in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus, as we see, doesn't take the bait. He rather turns the tables on these Pharisees. Verse 5, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. In the Old Testament within Israel, there were certain actions that God permitted in Israel, but never actually officially sanctioned or commanded. There were actions allowed out of consideration for the wickedness and the weakness that permeated the land due to sin. It is because of the hardness of heart that God permits and allows for a certificate of divorce. Really, what you have here in this concession from Moses is the lesser of two evils, as we might call it. A merciful concession for the sake of the woman, 
who lived in Old Testament Israel. Uh, A woman was to be given a certificate of divorce, releasing her from the marriage, affirming her right to remarry, essentially protecting the woman from becoming an outcast and destitute. So what you had in Israel due to sin is men were throwing out their wives out onto the streets and their whole financial stability, their whole welfare was based on who they were married to, was based on their husbands. And so because of sin and the wickedness of men throwing their wives out, that God allowed and permitted for this certificate of divorce so that they would be saved and protected and able to remarry and have financial stability and welfare. So due to sin, men were leaving their wives in the dust with no prospects uh, because they were still wedded to their husband. And in that position and in that context, God allows for a certificate of divorce. God allows the man to give a certificate of divorce to the woman, setting her free. In other words, divorce, which was an evil in God's sight, was permitted and allowed in order to limit the sinfulness and its consequences within Israel. Divorce was allowed and permitted in order to limit the permeation of the sinfulness of the hard hearts of the men and women within Israel. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were seeing divorce and the allowance of it not as a blight on humanity and its fallen condition, but rather as a godly sanctioned way out of the marriage commitment. Divorce wasn't being seen as evidence of sin, as an offense to a holy institution established by God, but rather a positive thing meant to be taken advantage of. And so in Jesus' day, you had Jewish schools of thought that went so far as to say you could divorce your wife if she oversalted your food. You could divorce your wife if she just didn't please you anymore. Divorce was extremely easy to attain. It's interesting when one looks at the history of the rising divorce rate in this country over the last 50 to 60 years, it will show that the divorce rate really started to take off after the state of California in 1969 enacted a statute allowing for, quote-unquote, no-fault divorce making divorce extremely easy to attain, and eventually all states within the United States would take on this no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce. What an oxymoron. What a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as no-fault divorce. Divorce is always, always the fault and result of sin. And we add sin on top of sin when we normalize the result of sin. Not only have we failed to acknowledge divorce being the result of sin, but we have taken the result of sin, which is divorce, and we have normalized it. We have made it part of our culture, as Barbara Whitehead's book title suggests, a divorce culture. So we are heaping sin on top of sin not recognizing that divorce is the result of sin, and then we are normalizing the result, which is divorce. And that is exactly what was taking place in the first century among the Jewish people. 
The fact of the matter is, we here in this country, just as the Pharisees of Jesus' day, due to sin, are blind to the ugliness of divorce because we are blind to the beauty of marriage. Which leads us, secondly, to marriage and creation. Marriage and creation. In verse 6 through 7, Jesus quotes Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. Would you read verse 6 through 7 with me? Uh, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now here, Jesus is really answering his own question that he posed back in verse 3. Recall back in verse 3, Jesus asked the question, what did Moses command? In verse 4, you have the Pharisees respond, and they run to one of the commandments of Moses in Deuteronomy 24. But just as Moses is the author of Deuteronomy 24, so also he is the author of Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 as well. Jesus asks the question, what did God command through Moses? The Pharisees run to divorce. They run to the passage that speaks of an out from marriage. Jesus runs to a passage that speaks of the beauty of marriage and the ugliness of destroying it. Marriage, in fact, is so beautiful, brothers and sisters, that it is part and parcel of the beautiful, spotless, pre-fallen creation that God had made in the beginning. Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That word in the original Hebrew in Genesis 2, 24, hold fast to, is used to refer to the bones that cling to flesh, essentially telling us what? That we are to live out what God declares the spouses to be. God says to husband and wife, you are one flesh union. Now live that out by clinging and clinging to your husband and wife as bone clings and holds fast to flesh. It's also a, a word used for a, a soldier who would hold fast to his sword in battle. Husbands, we are to hold fast to our wives. Wives, we are to hold, you are to hold fast to your husbands. We are to cling to our spouses as bones cling to flesh, as a warrior clings to his sword in battle. We are to put into action what God declares you to be, one flesh, clinging to one another, holding fast to each other. Genesis 2.24, which Jesus quotes in verse 7, really concludes the Adam narrative in Genesis Adam is in a sense complete when he joins in one flesh marriage union with Eve. We read earlier in our unison reading of scripture in Genesis 2, Adam is going around and he is naming the animals. And he's seeing all these animals that have mates and he's realizing that he himself does not have a mate fit for him. But notice that it is not Adam that takes action into his own, own hands. It is not Adam that goes and finds a mate and creates a mate fit for him. 
Rather, we are told from God, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so Jesus says in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, what divorce is like, it's like a beautiful painting that God has created, that God has made and taking that painting and ripping it in half. A loveless marriage, a marriage where a husband and wife are not holding fast to each other, clinging to each other, is like distorting that painting, that beautiful image that God has made, putting in smudge marks, putting lines through it, and distorting its beauty. It's interesting, whenever we hear about advice about long-lasting marriages, we Uh, often talk about the undying commitment the husband and wife are to have for one another, and certainly that is the case as we see with the word hold fast to. But seldom when long-lasting marriages are discussed do you hear talk about an undying commitment to God. That is what is primary for Jesus. That is what takes center stage for Jesus. Let man not separate what God has joined together. Husbands, how you love your wife is a reflection of how you love the God who has given her to you. Wives, how you love your husbands is a reflection of how you love the God who has given you, given him to you. One of the questions we often ask ourselves as Christians is how can I love God more? How can I serve God more? I wonder how high on the list of answers is, love my wife more. Love my husband more. How you treat your spouse is a reflection on how you treat the God who has given your spouse to you. How you treat the good things that God has created is a reflection on how you treat the creator himself. We are to commit ourselves to the Lord as well as to our wives and to our husbands because it is the Lord that has given you your wife and your husband and it is the Lord that has made a helper fit for the man. So we are to think on God and our commitment to him when we think of our wives and we think of our husbands. Third and finally, marriage and commitment, marriage and commitment. Verse 10, the disciples, when they have Jesus alone, ask Jesus again about this matter. The disciples themselves seem to be dumbfounded by this teaching from Jesus. In fact, in the parallel account in Matthew 19, verse 10, uh, we are told from the disciples there, they say to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If this is the case, Jesus, then why get married? They are hearing Jesus and what marriage entails, this undying, self-sacrificing commitment to both the spouse and to God, and they say, whoa, that is heavy. That is a big commitment. Why would anyone get married? And Jesus, in response, doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't make it easier for these disciples. No, he actually doubles down. 
And he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, what Jesus here would have is saying would have been unique in the first century Jewish culture. Uh, According to rabbinic law and according to Jewish customs at the time, a man could commit adultery against another married man by seducing his wife, and a wife could commit adultery against her husband by infidelity. But a husband could not be said to commit adultery against his former wife. And so what you have here from Jesus is he is elevating the status of the wife. He is elevating the status of the woman, saying that the man has as much obligation to fidelity as the woman does. He is is establishing the dignity and upholding the dignity of the woman in the marriage, showing both have this obligation to fidelity. You know, our culture and the entertainment industry, and especially the porn industry today, which makes millions upon millions of dollars each year, has so soiled in men's mind the dignity of women. There are so many messages in our culture today, both explicit and subliminal, that paints in the minds of women nothing is more than mere objects for men's pleasure. And it destroys husbands' views of their wives. And the message of our culture creeps into the minds of husbands, and they they start to lose sight of the dignity, of the beauty of their wives, both inside and out. And And one ends up following is a loss of commitment to the one that God has made fit for us and a loss of commitment to the one who is a fellow image bearer of God. The Pharisees and really the Jewish community at the time had lost sight of this as well as we have in our own culture. And it brought easy divorces, loss of commitment, because of a loss of dignity in the eyes of the man for the woman. Verse 11 through 12, Jesus seems to suggest that there is no legitimate ground for divorce. There is no reason whatsoever to get divorced. However, we know in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus will say, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If a husband or a wife has committed adultery, then the offended party is released from their marriage obligations and is free to remarry. In Leviticus 20, in the Old Testament, we are told that an adulterer was to be put to death. Capital punishment was the penalty for adultery, ultimately leaving the offended spouse to remarry. A Christian in such a circumstance may act as though their spouse was dead and is free now to remarry. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 that adultery is an acceptive clause, that one who commits adultery or is uh, an offended party in adultery is free from the marriage and able to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, Paul will give the exception of desertion. Uh, If a husband or wife deserts and abandons his or her spouse, then the offended spouse is free from their marital obligations 
and free to remarry. Uh, So we know according to Scripture, interpreting Scripture, uh, as Scripture balances out Scripture, that there are two exceptions for divorce and marriage, desertion, abandonment, and adultery. However, in recognizing those two biblical exceptions, we need to recognize that that is not the point of Mark here in this passage. If we read this passage and we run to our biblical way out, we have fallen into the pharisaical trap. We have failed to see marriage as Jesus sees marriage and are starting to see it as the Pharisees saw it, looking for ways out rather than the beauty of marriage that Christ puts on display in this passage. Mark doesn't mention the exceptions because Mark wants to emphasize what Jesus here is emphasizing, and that is that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Now, there are times where I'll look down and I'll look at my wedding ring, and I'll be reminded that I have promised before God, I have committed myself before God to love honor, cherish, and protect my wife, forsaking all others and holding fast to her till death do me part. And this ring is a reminder that I have made a lifelong commitment. It is a reminder that we have made a lifelong commitment to hold fast to our spouses until death do us part. Husbands cherish marriage because Christ cherishes marriage. Wives cherish marriage because Christ cherishes marriage and hold fast to your spouse. Cling to them as bones cling to flesh, for such is the will of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that There are people who are affected by this passage here in this room, even. And Father, these are hard words from Jesus. But we know, O Lord, that there is forgiveness for absolutely every sin under heaven in Christ and his blood. And I pray that if there is guilt in this room as as one reads this passage and hears it preached, that that they would throw that guilt at the cross, that they would throw that guilt on Jesus and know that you mend our wounds, that you heal us and you forgive us, that you blot out all sins of our past, present and future, as far as the east is from the west. So I pray, O Father, that, that we would take heed of the charge and the command here from Jesus as he, as he displays the beauty of marriage and its seriousness and its solemnity, that we would hold fast to our wives and to our husbands, and that we would seek to bring honor and glory to you who has held fast to your covenant people, who you have wedded yourself to and gone so far as to show your love and commitment that you would send your only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. So we pray, O Father, that we would have that very commitment, not only for our spouses, but for each other, that is put on display at the cross of Calvary. Help us to do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.